I don't know if at a very young age I knew I wanted to be an announcer, but I knew I loved to talk about sports and everyone around me knew I loved to talk about sports. My first and second grade teacher, Mrs. Dunwoody, she would complain to my parents about my disrupting class with updates of whatever game had been played the night before, usually the Philadelphia Phillies. I would read the Philadelphia Inquirer and see what had happened in the games. And then I wanted to let everybody know about it. So at a very early age, seven or eight years old, I loved being the one to tell everybody what happened and to break that news. Certainly at an early age, seven or eight, I had the gift, I guess, of wanting to break news and share stories. And certainly in my teenage years, I have vivid memories of watching sporting events, oftentimes up in the attic at my parents' house with nobody up there, turn the volume all the way down and I'd call the games. You know, I'd turn the announcers off and I'd call the games. I'd do my notes and prep and, and the whole thing. So at, at that point, I knew this is what I wanted to do. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Joel Goldberg. Joel is a sports broadcaster as well as a podcaster and the author of the book, Small Ball, Big Results. Joel has worked in four markets during a 25-plus year career, covering two World Series championship teams and thousands of baseball games, not to mention multiple Super Bowls, NHL playoffs, and NCAA March Madness basketball games. He also works as a business consultant, sharing his unique perspective on business that he has acquired through his work in the sports and entertainment fields. You can learn more about Joel at joelgoldbergmedia.com. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Joel. Joel, I'd like to welcome you to the corporate couch today. Good to be on the, the couch, so to speak, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. Joel's coming live from Cleveland. Uh, yeah, he does uh, work for the Royals, and we'll get into that. Yeah, it's a beautiful hotel room with beautiful curtains I can see in the background here on Zoom. Listen, for all of you listening, you're missing this. You don't get to see the curtains, but they look like the curtains in just about every other hotel room. So that, that <laughs> just to paint a picture here. <laughs> uh, Joe, I love you. You've had a great uh, career and uh, a little more of an outlier than most uh, guests on the corporate couch, but we're going to get into that. And I, and what, and, you know, I think you've lived a, a person's dream, some people's dreams in terms of what you've done in, in, in sports and sports reporting and news anchoring. But I can't wait to talk about your, you know, you started your podcast, you wrote a book and you're doing, you know, um, consulting for companies, helping them with their culture and team building and leadership, which is all all areas close to my heart, which I love. So we're going to dig into that. But uh, how about a fun question to start off? You know, we've been living in this pandemic world, 
you know, for three plus years now uh, and Zoom become commonplace. What's the craziest attire you've seen on a professional Zoom call or lack of attire? I'll just give you my own because I haven't seen anything too crazy. And, and of course, we may all be better off for what we're not seeing translation below the waist. hundred you know, I mean, percent. You know, the, the, the joke with, with people on TV all the years. And I think people at home realize this too, is that, Hey, they might be wearing shorts or they, you know, it's, it's waist up usually, but at least for me in my role, like I can't pull that off. Cause I'm, I'm on location. I'm at the stadium, but once the pandemic hit, you know, it was like, whatever you want to do. And so sure shorts and uh, a shirt and tie might've been normal, but I, I will say that there was one zoom call I can remember and we were working out of home. We didn't travel for baseball for two years, 2020, which was only a 60 game season. So we lost 102 games in 2021. No, no television broadcast crews around the country uh, were traveling at all and radio um, almost no one. I, we're at a point now where everyone is, except for maybe a couple radio teams around around the big leagues. So we would have these, you know, daily um, press briefings. I guess you call them. You know, the, the the manager of a baseball team meets with the media before and after every single game, so two a day. And so you're doing those on Zoom. And I just I remember being in the shower. The team was traveling, so I didn't have to go into this. I, I did have to go into the stadium. We were doing games, road games from home. But instead of showing up at, say, 3 o'clock for a 7 o'clock game, I'm showing up at 6 o'clock for a 7 o'clock game for a 6.30 show because there was nobody for me to talk to. And I'm in the shower, and, and right as I'm getting out of the shower, my producer texts me, are you getting on this thing or what? And I'm like, oh, crap. It's like 3.02, and there was a press conference at 3, which I messed up my times. And we've got answers that I've got to be able to ask. And so I just, I did that press conference in a towel and was like, please do not turn on your camera. Please do not turn on your camera. Uh, we can debate whether I have a face for radio or all that, but I know this much. Nobody needs to see me right now. So I asked some very riveting questions in a towel and I haven't told anybody that, but uh, I couldn't remember which game and I guess it all worked out. That's great. That 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 might be uh, one of the best, if not the best, story. Yeah. Um, and and we got the soundbite. You know, the couple soundbites that we needed for the pregame show, which I host that night. And the manager looked fully clothed, and nobody knew that the the questioner had nothing. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that image. Well, no, and the nice part, and I, it, it might be the first public reveal of that. So that's yeah. you know that's 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 the kind of work we do here for our listeners on the corporate Listen, couch. Here, that that is what happens when you get on the couch. <laughs> we might have a shower edition. You you could yeah. beat that yeah. one. Out. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I'd love to dig a little bit into people's childhood. What did you love doing as a kid? What was fun for you? 100% sports. And, you know, I think that's probably an obvious answer for anybody that loved sports. For people that didn't love sports, maybe not so much, right? But for me growing up, and I was, I'm not being modest here, I was a below average athlete. I, I was I was the kind of athlete that was, you know, good on the local rec team. But I was never going to play. I mean, nowadays, we everything's travel ball this and travel ball that. 
Um, I was going to make the all-star teams in Little League on the lower-level teams, not the, you know, not the high elite teams. But I love to play everything. I love to watch everything. I would argue that I knew more about sports as a kid than I do now. Now it's work, and I know what I need to know, and and I and then I know some of what I want to know for things that I enjoy. But my childhood, I can remember until we moved to Chicago when I was thirteen. We we lived in South Jersey outside of Philadelphia in a neighborhood. The neighborhood we moved to in Chicago didn't have as many kids and older homes. Um, so really my, my memories of playing sports were in this neighborhood where all the kids were my age, you know, the good old days, as we like to say, where in the summer you're out until it got dark until, you know, until mom was, well, I, I don't think we rang a bell, but, I, and certainly wasn't phones. I think she probably, you know, came out in the front and, and yelled to come in and, uh, or you came in, you had dinner and you went back out until it got dark and, you know, you, 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 you played basketball. You played football, you played street hockey, baseball, wiffle ball, basketball. I mean, everything on the street or in the backyards. And that's what we did all day, every day, day and night during the summer. And then, you know, maybe late at night playing some tag or things like that. And that was childhood. And then if I was inside, I was probably watching sports on TV. Yeah, I love it. Well, and um, we may have chatted when we had coffee, but... um... I grew up in New York, so I want I have to see if stickball was one of those games because we yeah. played a lot of stickball. Yeah. yeah, we did some stickball and wiffle ball. Those yeah. are the two big ones. And, yeah. you know, wiffle ball in the backyard, yeah. stickball, or wall ball, I think we might have called it. I yeah. mean, it could have been anything. It could have been tethered ball. It could have been anything that had some type of ability to compete, yeah. whether it was two people, whether it was 15 people. Um, that's what we did. And I don't remember doing much of it. Riding bikes, you know, we'd ride our bikes everywhere. I, I don't remember much of anything else. Right. So, uh, you know, when you were a kid, did you have aspirations of being an athlete when you were growing up or was it something different or was it an announcer? <laughs> um, it was both. I don't know the age where I realized that it wasn't going to happen but it was earlier than probably most because I was never the superstar athlete in any group of people. I had the same passion as everybody else, but I, I was never going to be the standout athlete uh, in spite of leading the uh, T-ball league one year in home runs, wow. which was, you know, a big deal. Come on for a seven year old or whatever I was, but <laughs> I don't know if at a very young age, I knew I wanted to be an announcer but I knew I loved to talk about sports and everyone around me knew I loved to talk about sports to the point where my first and second grade teacher, Mrs. Dunwoody, who I say first and second, cause she moved up with us one grade. So I don't know if this happened in first or second grade, but I know that she would complain to my parents about my disrupting class with updates of whatever game had been played the night before, usually the Philadelphia Phillies. I would read the Philadelphia Inquirer and read the newspaper and, and, and see what had happened. Uh, in the games. And then I wanted to let everybody know about it. So at a very early age, seven or eight years old, I loved being the one to tell everybody what happened and to break that news. And of course, we're going back to a time, you remember it, I remember it, where you didn't have instant notifications with cell phones and Twitter and Instagram and social media. You either watched it on the 10 o'clock news or in out on the East Coast, it was the 11 o'clock news. Or you read about it in the paper in the morning. And as a young kid, I wasn't staying up to watch the 11 o'clock news. And so I was, uh, you know, doing that. So 
Uh, certainly at an early age, seven or eight, I had the gift, I guess, of wanting to break news and share stories, uh, probably too much so. And, and certainly in my teenage years, I have vivid memories. This is more after we moved to Chicago of watching sporting events, oftentimes up in the attic at my parents' house with nobody up there and the television on mute, or I don't know that there was a mute button then, but turn the volume all the way down and I'd call the games, but, you know, I'd, I'd turn the announcers off and I'd call the games. I'd do my notes and prep and, and the whole thing. So at, at that point, I knew this is what I wanted to do. And is that what led you to University of Wisconsin broadcasting degree? Not really. It, I started looking at schools and I applied to three of them. And I don't know why I applied for more. I was probably like your typical teenage boy that was like, yeah, that's enough. I, I'm too lazy to fill out the other. I don't know. But the three schools that I was interested in were Wisconsin, Indiana, and Mizzou. I was interested in Mizzou because I knew that they had a very, very well-known journalism program. I never visited it. I visited Indiana, which I, I really liked a lot. I visited Wisconsin, had a lot of friends that were up there that were a year older than me, and I fell in love with Wisconsin. And then I had a decision to make. Do I, do I go to Mizzou, which I'd gotten into, or do I go to Wisconsin? Mizzou had the better journalism program. But there were no guarantees that I would get into that journalism program, and I wouldn't find out until my junior year whether I got in, if I remember this correctly. And I just ended up deciding and saying, you know what, I'm going to go to the school that I like best and see what happens. So I went to Wisconsin. I was a journalism major. Everything worked out perfectly, but not as smoothly as I thought. I mean, there were stretches where I thought about transferring Actually, I thought about Southern Illinois because I had friends uh, from Chicago that had gone to Southern Illinois and they had a, a very robust broadcast program. And I was watching friends of mine getting reps uh, in radio and television that I was not getting at Wisconsin, being at a bigger school like that. And I thought maybe I'm missing the boat here. But I stayed the course in my last couple of years. I had an a internship that was supposed to be one semester at the NBC television station. And I, I think they probably quietly went against the rules. I think you're supposed to get credit and be there for a semester. And they kept me for four semesters because they liked, I don't know, that they liked that I was reliable. I, I learned how to do some things that took some burden off of them. And so that was the greatest thing that ever happened, uh, along with the journalism classes at Wisconsin, is that I was getting this hands-on experience, if not so much in front of the camera, some, but a lot behind the camera, all the skills that I needed, editing and uh, writing, things like that, that, that made me valuable. And so it ended up being the best decision. That's great. Did you just migrate from that internship to start working for that station then, right after when you graduated? Or how'd you get your first job? No, and I think this is this is worth pointing out. And look, sometimes in whatever field you're in, it, it's great if, you know, if internship and the sacrifice and the dues you paid then lead to an opening, great. It's not always that easy. I mean, nothing in life is rarely in life do you go from point A to point B, right? There usually stops along the way. So when I got out of Wisconsin, I would have loved a job at the NBC television affiliate in Madison, but they weren't really hiring anybody straight out of school, not to be on the air. And that's what I wanted. That market size, which was maybe 80 something, maybe 83, if I remember correctly, 83rd biggest market, they, they were typically hiring people. That was a landing spot for your second job. And so I ended up getting a job 
about three and a half hours north of there in a small town that just happened to have an NBC television station named Rhinelander, Wisconsin. And if anybody's listening that has been uh, up to, to the north woods of Wisconsin, probably a place that you, you would enjoy visiting during the summer, not so much in the winter, unless you enjoy outdoor winter sports and snowmobiling and ice fishing and things like that. It was, it was a great starter market. That was, that market size was somewhere in the hundred forties, I think combined with a, a bigger, a bigger city named Wausau, which was about an hour away. You know, Wausau was about 35,000 people. Rhinelander was about 7,800 people. I get hired as, as a news reporter. I only wanted to do sports, but I, I understood that getting a foot in the door w- was a difficult thing to do. And they actually had a bureau in Wausau. The station was up in Rhinelander. The bureau was in Wausau with the thought that they had some of their advertising department down there and one young reporter that would cover that whole area. Not that this is some big city, but compared to Rhinelander, there was enough going on there where the two competing stations, ABC and CBS, which had full staffs and they were located in Wausau. I don't remember. They probably had seven, eight, nine reporters covering the area. Well, my first job right out of school was the Wausau Bureau reporter, and it was just me. And I was the reporter, and I was the photographer, and the editor, and the writer, and the producer. And I would go out there, and I'd find a story every day, and I'd finish it, and I'd edit it, and I'd send it up on some system that we had that got up in time for the news in Rhinelander, and I had no clue what I was doing. And I was all on my own, you know, and, and as a matter of fact, on weekends, I would go up to Rhinelander. We didn't even have weekend news yet. We got it pretty soon after. And I would go hang out with everybody there because they were all my age. So I'd crash on uh, uh, the sports guy's floor and I'd stay the night uh, or two nights because I had no I had no life. But, you know, I was working like 14, 16 hour days. I, I would I would do my news shift, whatever it was, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., 6.30 p.m., 9 a.m., whatever it was. And and then I would say to the sports department, uh, the the sports anchor and the weekend, uh, or the not the weekend, uh, the, the the sports reporter who became the weekend sports anchor, I would say, do you guys need anything? you guys need anything down in the Wausau area? Yeah, we'd love it if you'd shoot this game. We'd love it if you shoot that game. I'm like, well, I'm not getting paid by the hour. I got nothing else to do. I got no social life. I don't know anybody. Sure, I'll work a double every day if that means I get to go on the sidelines of a football game or any sport for that matter. And that sort of eventually got me into to doing sports full time. Now, did you ever cover an ice fishing tournament while you were up there? Or I'm just oh my gosh, Jeff! I mean, like the <laughs> stuff I covered up there. So what happened? It was actually, you know, I look back on it now, and and in many ways it was as gratifying as covering sports, even though sports was the the goal was that, you know, being in an area like that, which is very outdoorsy, they had a feature segment. I have no recollection if it was once a week, twice a week, but it was called uh, Northwoods extra. That area is called the Northwoods. And it was just interesting stories, whether they be outdoors or whether they just be interesting human interest stories um, and that became kind of my beat when I moved up after three months, about December. So I started in October, it would have been December, January of 94, 95. They said, we're going to move you up here. Great. Now I get to be with people. 
and we want you to take over the Northwoods extra beat. And that was really one of the coolest jobs I've ever had because while it wasn't often sports or when it was sports, it was, it was ice fishing. It was, I remember doing a feature on dog sled racing. I did a feature once on a snowshoe baseball tournament. It was like a fundraiser where people were playing um, baseball or softball in the, in the snow, wearing snowshoes, turkey bowling on, on Thanksgiving, rolling turkeys down the ice. The big one up there still exists, I believe, today is the annual, um, I might get the exact title wrong, the World Championship Snowmobile Derby up in an area called, a town called Eagle River. And I'm telling you, like, the, the prerequisite was whenever this thing happened, it had to be, like, 20 below zero. And you're outside covering, like, a, the version of a NASCAR race on a track on, on snowmobiles going round and round. But you met the most interesting people and made the most awful mistakes you know oops the, i did i forgot to bring batteries i can't shoot this or or, or or i lost the batteries i put them on the top of the car and drove away or the camera was out of focus or i hit a deer on the way there or i mean they're like there there are so many times at this job that paid me you know a little over a thousand dollars a month there were so many times I'm like, I'm going to get fired. Like I'm terrible at this, but I think almost everybody was to some extent, you know, and it was like, it was a victory just to get your foot in the door. It was another victory to be able to stay. And then another victory to be able to move on to the next spot. And somehow some way that happened. You know, but I, it must've been tremendous because it gave you the end to end, you know, process that you had to do yourself, which probably helped you immensely as you, moved on in your career because you understood what the producer did and the, the, you know, when you're editing your own film yet, you know, at 22 or five, whatever yeah. it was, I mean, and crazy. And I actually, uh, I, we, some friends and I, uh, we used to go to Clear Lake. So I've been in Wausau and mm -hmm. that, that Northwoods area, but yeah, you, you would not want to go in the winter. And I really want to ask, but it, we could spend a lot of time at. So in, in bowling, three strikes in a row is a turkey. But in turkey bowling, do they call it something else? <laughs> I don't remember. And I probably have it on some tape in a format that doesn't exist anymore, buried in the basement and storage. Um, I know it had, you know, some unique rules to it. I know that and this is usually in the intro uh, of my speeches now when, when they, you know, they want a fun little intro and. It ends with, um, you know, it's not all glamour. So something like, it's not all glamour. Joel has covered everything from snowshoe baseball to tick racing on a pool table. And it was, <laughs> I did that story once and it was just, you were looking for anything up there. And of course, you're not looking for a 30 second blip on the news. You're, you're, hey, I can do four minutes on this. Great. You know, we'll take anything we can get. But there was some fundraiser at some bar, shocking, there was a lot of alcohol involved at some resort an hour and a half away. And they said, we'll put you up in our cabins for the night. And so it went there and, and I don't know, some fundraiser where, where they raced little ticks. And if, if your tick lost, you smashed it with a mallet or something. And I don't, I don't remember much else. And quite frankly, after, after the shooting was after, after we were done shooting it. And when I say we, I was usually by myself, but they gave me an intern who, you know, I'm 22, 23 years old. And the intern was probably my age. <laughs> as well he was getting ready to go off into the air force or something like that kid named eric kerr and uh, the two of us went and and we shot the story and and uh and the next thing i remember was probably waking up having had a few too many the night 
uh, the, the the morning after. But that, that was kind of life up there, and and I wouldn't trade it. I, I wouldn't go back, but I wouldn't trade it either. There, there's something, you know, there's just such a an innocence to to starting at that level and being humbled every single day. Yeah, you know, and questioning yourself whether you belong or whether you don't belong. And uh, but I look back on that now, and and you're right. I mean, everything I learned. And I think, you know, like after that, you get to a point in your career where you're not allowed to shoot the video. You're not allowed to do these certain things uh, and edit. And you've got people doing them for you. And that that in itself is an adjustment, because as much as you understand what they're going through, you're sitting there saying, well, I, I think I could do this better or I would do this differently. And it becomes a great lesson as you move up on, you know, picking spots and not being that person that's looking over someone's shoulder and understanding that there are multiple ways to do things. Uh, but back then, you know, I had my own process and, and I learned and, and failed and, and it, it really, in many ways, made me who I am today. Yeah. So did you, uh, I know you uh, then, I think you went to uh, St. Louis uh, Fox affiliate right after that. And how did you uh, obtain that job going from the, the Rhinelander, Wausau, Wisconsin area to uh, St. Louis? So there's a stop along the way. I went back to Madison and that's when. I went back to the TV station that had me as an intern. So the benefit in that internship to me more than anything else. And I did learn, like I learned how to be a very good editor there. And to this day, I believe that I'm a good editor, at least on the scale of people that are on TV, like you know, on camera personalities. Cause I did all that and I always enjoyed it. And now today with the technology is different, but I love to edit still to this day. And so I knew how to do that. I'd learned that there, but more importantly is I had made connections at that station. And so I stayed in touch with those guys when, when we would go down to Madison from Rhinelander to cover a, a Wisconsin football game. And then I'd see those guys at the game. And so, you know, well before social media, I was, I, I was networking and connecting and staying in touch with those guys. So when they had an opening, they said, Hey, we're adding a fourth person to our three, person sports staff but it's not going to really be on the air it's going to be producing but we might be able to get you a little bit of airtime and maybe do some high school sports and I thought you know what it's time I've been in Rhinelander for two plus years it's time to move on let's take this next step and that being that fourth person then turned into being being the third person and getting <clears throat> a lot more reps and then what happened was this is such the business and I think it's not just my business of television. I think it's most businesses. I always tell people that you never know who you meet and how that's going to affect your future employment. You never know if the person that doesn't seem to have a role that you're interested in could one day be your boss or could one day introduce you to your boss. So the guy whose floor I used to sleep in, sleep on up in Rhinelander when I was going up there for the weekends before I moved up there, and I only slept on his floor because like he had a couch that was too small for me and he had a Murphy bed. I mean, that's the way we lived up there. And so I'd take the pillows from the couch and sleep on his floor. And, and, and then he left Rhinelander and went to Madison to the CBS station. Well, a year later, I leave year plus later, I leave Rhinelander and I go to Madison to the NBC, my old station. Now we're competitors. So we're competing for the same stories during the day and we're going out and hanging out together for drinks at night he leaves the cbs station and gets a job with the fox affiliate in st louis in 1997 as the third person on a four person on our staff no pardon me the fourth 
when somebody left a year later, he moved up to number three. He recommended me. I came down there for an interview. They flew me down and they hired me. So I ended up being the fourth person on that staff. And that was really the first big jump into everyday bigger name sports. Meaning that when I was in Rhinelander and Madison, we might take a trip to Green Bay and cover a game. Or we might go to training camp. But I was never there every single day. I covered Brett Favre. I covered Reggie White. But they wouldn't have known my name. They might have recognized my face. I was still uh, a small fish in a big pond. And I was in awe of everything. But once I got to St. Louis, now you're covering Major League Baseball every day. At the time, you're covering NFL football every day. And my first full season of football there my second year there, but my first full season of covering an NFL team was the historic season where the St. Louis Rams had Kurt Warner burst onto the scene and they went from a team that was four and 12 to Super Bowl champions. And I'm now traveling around the country with them and flying on their plane and the whole works. And so, and NHL hockey and playoffs. And so that was really where, where I really cut my teeth with the big stuff. I love that. Uh, the greatest show on turf, right? That team, yep. Ramil, yep. Marshall Falk, uh, who yep. was yep. They had, uh, uh, Isaac Bruce. Isaac Bruce, Kurt Warner, Tory Holt was a rookie, yep. or future Hall of Famer, Orlando Pace yep. was the was the star line. And I knew all those guys. I lived, I lived, you know, and the, the funny part about that one is that the Rams made two key acquisitions, I mean, among probably others, that offseason. Um, getting Marshall Falk was a big deal, huge deal. Uh, best football player I've ever covered. I covered football for a lot of years. It's been a lot of years now. Best football player that I ever covered. Smartest football player I ever covered. But I remember the real, the, the big one was that they had traded for Trent Green, who was at the time with the Washington Redskins. But he was a local boy. He'd gone to high school in St. Louis. And they didn't have a good quarterback. And now finally they get a good quarterback and Marshall Falk. And so everybody's excited about it. And I am the sideline reporter because the Fox affiliate had the, the preseason game. I am the sideline reporter for um, their second preseason game that year. I believe it was the second one. Chargers at the Rams. And I'm working the sidelines. And Trent Green gets taken down by Rodney Harrison, who's now a television commentator on NBC, and his knee gives out, and he tears, I think, his ACL. And I think everybody in St. Louis is like, we finally thought we had a team, and now we're done. And I remember interviewing Dick Vermeil on the sideline, heading into the locker room at halftime, and saying something like, what do you do now? And he goes, we got Kurt Warner. And I just remember thinking, you know, okay, whatever. Like, <laughs> I, I, I had met Kurt during training camp, and he seems like the nicest human being ever. And I just remember thinking at the time, well, I hope he makes the team because it's nice to have a good guy around. And little did we, any of us know, that he would go on to be a Hall of Famer and, and one of the greatest qu quarterbacks and stories really in the history of sports. So I was there for all of that, which was um, seems like forever ago because it was. But that was really my first big experience of being around something at that level every single day. So how did you transition? I mean, like, you know, I, I would say we'd had similar growing up in terms of love of sports. I knew every stat, 
you know, uh, every NFL record, you know, uh, Babe Ruth's career batting average, Ted Williams, Mickey Mantles, you know, all the, all those Ty Cobb, Hottest Wagner, like I just, you know, it, it was before the internet where you couldn't look it up or anything like that. Uh, but no, so you grow up and you're, you know, you idol, you know, you grew up idolizing sports and obviously you're an adult now, or at least, you know, late twenties, maybe early thirties, but you know, and I, it's your job, but still you like, you're talking to, you know, a Dick Vermeil, you know, one of the best head coaches ever to coach in the NFL and, you know, Marshall Falk and all that. And so how, how do you kind of transition, you know, from being that kid idolizing these people to your job? I've actually thought about this lately because we have a new announcer on our broadcast team and he's young for, for this is my 16th season with the Royals and, and I'm 51 years old now. And I have been for all 16 years that I've been here. Well, the first 15, the youngest member of on our, our, on our broadcast team. And now we have a, a play-by-play guy that joined us on radio and he does some TV with us. That's 28. And he's a kid in a candy store and he, he's really good. But he's so he has so much of that excitement and innocence. And I don't want to take that away from him. And I want that to last for him as long as it can. But I don't have that anymore. And I don't say that in a bad way. I say it actually in a way that I'm very at peace with and very happy with. And here's what I mean by it is that in those young years, I was in awe of so many people. Sometimes to my detriment, I might be a little bit nervous to go talk to somebody. I put them on a pedestal too much. And what happens for, for I think, a lot of young broadcasters, and I think, again, in any profession, too, is that we, we oftentimes put people on a pedestal, and maybe they deserve it. And we forget that they're just human beings. And so they're – and I'm not saying that that's what our young broadcaster is doing now. I don't. He's very comfortable. But that was me at the time. And there's a great piece in just, this is what I do, having a confidence that I do it well. Some days are better than others. Some days are worse. But I have lost that. I've lost the enthusiasm for sports that I had as a kid or when I broke in, but I've replaced it, I believe, with a deeper meaning, a deeper passion for storytelling, a deeper passion for understanding what makes people tick. Uh, for understanding the struggles they go through every day. Certainly this Royals team that I'm covering this year, uh, unless something real drastically changes, will have the worst record, uh, I believe, in franchise history. Yet I'm I'm drawn to the stories of adversity and resilience. And, and a lot of that, of course, translates into my speaking business now. So I'm at a point now where it's not about wins and losses. It's always more fun when they're winning. It's always more fun. And I've covered some of the most amazing athletes, you know, from Marshall Falk and Kurt Warner to Albert Pujols or from the other side, Miguel Cabrera, or you name it, you know, um, in every sport, you know, the Wayne Gretzky's. And so I'll always have an appreciation when, when I see some of the top players in the game do what they do. I'm in awe still like I always was. But this is just my everyday life now, and so it's normal to me. And I think the challenge with that is just to not forget, to not take it for granted. If this has become normal to me, if it's normal to walk on a field, it's normal to walk in a locker room, it's normal to have an, uh, a normal conversation with a superstar. And it used to be like, oh, wait, I don't even know if they know my name. Wait, do they know my name? Am I, you know, am I doing this right? 
of course they know my name and I have their cell phone number and it's just all normal to me. So the challenge is to keep it fresh and to not take it for granted. But I love the place that I'm in where this is just, I believe where I belong and I don't second guess or question that. And that there, there's a lot of comfort in having that confidence and that staying power, I guess. Yeah. And I, I totally agree. You know, just, you know, I've been on the other side, you know, working for every uh, t-shirt size company from small four employees all the way up to over a million employees and everything in between. But, you know, that's what I tell people. And, you know, I was like you, you know, like if I had to talk to the CEO of my company or a vice president and I'm 23, I'd be like, oh my, you know, I'm going to lose my shit. And, you know, hope, hopefully I don't, you know, piss on myself or something. Yeah. But, yeah. but, you know, what I tell people now, they're just human beings with the same struggles and challenges yeah. as we all do. They just have a different title, but, you know, everybody has their journey and they go through, you know, their own stuff per se. Right. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's very similar from that perspective. It is the same. Like the plight of the CEO may not be all that different than the star athlete or the you know, the top sales producer who's suddenly going through a slump and the player, it, it, it all mirrors. It, it really does. Yeah. hundred percent. Uh, what was the craziest thing somebody did during an interview with you? Oh, there's so many, um, you know, I was interviewing Bobby Knight once, once the legendary fiery basketball coach who I was always mesmerized and intimidated by when I was a student at Wisconsin working as an intern and Indiana would come in or when I was there working and I could never take my eyes off of him because he was so animated and demonstrative on the sideline and the technical fouls and all this. And I interviewed him once. He was close friends with Tony La Russa, the hall of fame manager for the Cardinals. And he was friends with Bill Belichick, Bill Parcells, all guys that were kind of known as being, you know, bullies of coaches really. I mean, but that, you know, all very successful and very intimidating men and I got Bobby Knight to do an interview while he was at a Cardinals game live on, I was working local news at that point before moving to regional sports. And, and so it must've been like the live five o'clock news or something like that. And he was at Texas tech at that point. And I asked a question that hit a sore spot for him. And it wasn't intended to be either. Like I, I stepped in something that I didn't even realize I was stepping in. So it was not my intent to rile him up, but I, he didn't like it. He walked off right in the middle of the interview. And so that was one where, uh, Ooh, okay. Um, so that, that was, that was a tricky one. I think I decided to send it back. It was a little embarrassing. Um, you know, the most fun ones ever are we, we, we have the um, comedians every year that come in uh, for the big slick um, celebrity deal in, in Kansas city, all these, celebrities from Kansas city. And, and that's been fun too, because you know, like the first year that they did it, 2010, I think, I think 10 or 11, you know, it started with Paul Rudd, Jason Sudeikis and um, Rob Riggle, all of whom had, had accomplished quite a bit, probably Paul Rudd the most. Now Jason Sudeikis is the hottest name because of Ted Lasso, but you know, over the years they've, they've added more people and, Eric Stone Street from Modern Family. They're all local. Will Ferrell was there the first year, not local, but that was one of the most fun things ever. Uh, but there was a year where, because I'd be interviewing like six of them at a time live during the game. And so 
Stone Street was all the way down on the other end and, and accidentally dropped an F-bomb while we were live on the air. But he didn't realize because he was so far away from me that we had come back yet. And, uh, and and I think I said something like, hey, Eric, can you can you pick the mic up a little bit closer? We're live on the air, but there was no way for me to tell him. And, and they were they you know they were getting ready to hear from him. And he said, oh, F-bomb. Like, and he was just joking. And uh, that we had some policy like, all right, if there's any profanity, you have to end the interview and send it back. I'm like, we just got started two minutes ago. And um, so that one, you know, you wait all year for that one. And uh, it got ruined by that. And he felt terrible. Oh, um, so it's like, you know, it's little things like that. that, that nothing awful. The, 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 sometimes you just get stuck with someone that is answering questions with, you know, two word answers. And it's kind of like you know, asking a seven year old or, if anybody that has boys remembers when, when their kids were third grade, fourth grade, how was school? Good. What'd you do today? Nothing. Uh, what was the most fun thing? Recess. What'd you <laughs> eat? Okay. Good talk. You know, sometimes you get some of those, those are challenges, yeah, but I, for I the most part with my side. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you can talk as much or as little as you want, right? Because I know you, you know, you migrated out of the kind of the, uh, you know, TV affiliates, it's a Fox sports and all that, but I'd love to talk about what you're doing now and how you thought about, again, being in a lot of people would say as a dream job, you know, covering sports for your, for a living, but you decide to start a podcast, write a book, do consulting, you know, start Joe Goldberg media, you know, and help companies with their culture and team building and leadership. So Talk about, you know, kind of your career pivot. Not that you totally pivot, but broadened, I'll say. The first of the pivots came when I got out of affiliate news and got into all sports. And that was a no-brainer. I mean, I, I I didn't really feel like I was moving up at the local affiliate at the Fox. I had moved from the number four person to the number three. And then there was another move coming from the three to the two, which would have given me the weekend anchor and they chose somebody else. And so I, I knew that I was in a little bit of a dead end there. I had applied for uh, an opening at Fox Sports Midwest, which was all sports, um, covering the Cardinals and all this stuff. And they went with someone else. And three years later, they came back to me and said, that person's leaving. It didn't quite work out. We're, we, we've watched you work. We've paid a closer attention to We'd love to hire you. And so they did in 2005. After three years there, I came to Kansas City. And, and this is really, without realizing it at the time, this was the big change. Leaving news and going into all sports was the greatest thing that I ever did because, you know, you only get a few minutes of sports every single night, unless you're in Rhinelander where you're trying to fill a half-hour news with nothing to talk about. But, um, you know, most markets, you, you know, you hear, all right, you got to cover the weather, you got to cover all this stuff. So doing all sports was great. But I was still kind of stuck there, and then this – Royals gig opened up and it was going to be the same thing I was doing in St. Louis, same company Difference is in St. Louis, three of us shared responsibilities of the pregame show, the postgame show and the in-game reporting. And we worked year round with some other things in Kansas city. If I got that job, which I did, I was going to be the only guy and I was going to work six months a year. And instead of being a salaried employee, I was going to be a freelance employee. So the sacrifice was, I'm giving up my benefits. I'm giving up that salary, but I'm going to work a full baseball schedule and I'm not fighting anybody for airtime. It's going to be all me. And the question became, Jeff, what do I do with the other six months? And I had no clue. And for, oh, I would say about my first nine years 
in Kansas City, I would find some side things to do. Call a college hockey game. Call a smaller college basketball game. I wasn't getting any of the big stuff. Even a high school basketball tournament. Maybe an occasional appearance. I don't know. Just little things like that. Not Nothing that made a lot of money. and But it made some money and it got me out of the house and kept me from being bored. And then one summer, the winter of 2016, heading into 2017, and thankfully the Royals had already won a world championship. Maybe I had a, you know, a, a, certainly some recognizability in Kansas City. And a buddy said to me, you know, what, what, what are you up to during the winter? What do you do? That was everybody's question always. And I said, well, you know, I have this and this, and I'm calling this high school basketball holiday tournament or something in Columbia, Missouri. And next week I'm going to speak to the golf course and lawn care management association of blah, blah, blah. And he goes, well, do you do a lot of those? I'm like, not really. He says, you know, you could start a business doing that. I said, what? He said, you could start a whole speaking business, which anyone in the real world knows that's true. But I think the thing with my profession is that most of the speaking we do is usually, it's usually community engagement. Hey, can you come out to this Rotary Club? Hey, we'd love to have you MC this, you know, fundraiser. And it's more just giving back. You don't think about it as something that can be monetized. And every now and then, somebody slipped you a little bit of money, um, you know, a little bit of a, a stipend, a little bit of an honorarium. So you, I, I was never thinking that this was something that could be a business. So then I just, like, okay, wait a minute. What would I talk about? Well, I at least knew at that point that if I was going to go around and do a baseball speech, that's a limited audience. But I just watched a baseball organization in the Kansas City Royals in a small market go to back-to-back World Series and did so not by spending the most money, but by building an incredible culture. And I had a front row seat for all of it for, at that point, nine years. What if I dug deeper and started talking about how to build better teams and stronger cultures? And then I just started putting all the pieces in place. You know, you hire the speaking coach, you hire uh, someone to help you with your content, uh, on and on and on. And then I started networking like a madman because I believe that with the exposure I had on TV, that some people might hire me. They knew me if they were, say, sitting in the front row, but I didn't know them. And so I just, okay, let's talk to this person. And then they'll introduce me to somebody. And, you know, one became two, became five, 10, 20, 50, 100, 200, 300. Now you got this Rolodex of people. And I just started speaking in Kansas City until it then became speaking out of town, speaking around the state, speaking around the country, all with the focus being on culture. And then the other piece that you talked about was that, you know, I never intended to do any of this. That That's the beauty of it, uh, is that right away, everybody said, you got to write a book. Speakers write books. And I thought, what the hell am I going to write a book about that's going to get me a speech or that gives me any credibility? I'm not going to write a book on the Royals winning a world championship that's been written. I'm not going to write a book about how to become a broadcaster because that's been written. Although I think there are lessons learned and knocking door to door like I did to, to get my foot in the door and building relationships. Um, well, let me just, anybody know a ghostwriter? I'll hire a ghostwriter and we'll figure it out. So I meet with the ghostwriter and she turns to me and she could have taken my money. And she said, you're not ready to write a book, start a podcast instead. 
And I said, okay, how come? And she said, four reasons. One, you already know how to interview people. You do that for a living. Okay. Two, she said, it'd be good to expand your brand. Don't make it a baseball podcast. Start interviewing people, whatever the topic is, related to what you want to speak on. Three, it's a great way to network. What a great way to meet people. Because before all this digital stuff and, and all the online post-pandemic now stuff, I'd take my gear and I'd go into a CEO's office. And there I am in the mayor's office in Kansas City, in the CEO of H&R Block's office, on and on. And so suddenly you're, you're meeting some incredible people. Um, and the fourth piece she said was that you'll build content, content for your speeches, maybe content one day for your book. And so hundreds and hundreds of episodes later, meeting some of the most interesting people now in and out of Kansas City. I have more content than I know what to do with. I have more stories than I know what to do with. And it's the coolest thing ever because when I go and speak to fill in the blank company or association next week or next month or whenever it is, I have this library of content, most of it digital, with some of the most unique perspectives from CEOs startup entrepreneurs, active baseball players, retired baseball players, umpires, executives, musicians, uh, executive directors of charitable foundations, and on and on and on. And there's usually a common theme with everybody and their successes. Say you're famous in Kansas City, right? So you're going out meeting people. So of course, people want to meet Joe Goldberg. Uh, you know, because they're Royals fans, baseball fans, whatever. But did you find that a lot of people were just enamored with meeting you and wanted something from Joel Goldberg? Because I'll say I, I meet as many people as I can because I, I, I figure the more people I know, the more people I can help. But I could see with you, maybe the situation would sometimes turn. They just wanted to meet you because you're affiliated with, you know, the world champion Kansas City Royals or whatever. Yeah. No, that's it's a it's a very astute observation, and it was a very challenging realization to come to, and still is to some extent. I'm getting better at it because I'd like to help everybody too. And I'll say this much, and I don't know when this changed, but 2017, 2018, probably into 2019, even during the pandemic on Zoom calls, I found myself as much as what you're saying about people maybe wanting a piece of me, I didn't see it that way. I saw it almost like going back to square one again. I knew I could get in the doors, but I felt like every time I met with someone, while it would be great if they hired me to speak, and that was the goal that maybe they I could let them know what I'm doing and that maybe they would hire me or they'd know somebody. But I realized pretty quickly that that usually wasn't going to be the direct route to get there. My goal was to learn. And so it was hard for me to recognize that people might want a piece of me just for the sake of getting a piece when I felt like I was on the take, take, take. You know, and so for me, at least in my own head, it was like, what am I giving back? And what's happened in recent years is as the business has grown and I now have an incredible assistant who essentially serves as the traffic cop, you know, the firewall to me when needed. 
um, which isn't that much, but also runs my podcast, filters everything out, is that she can play the bad cop and protect me a little bit because I'm a yes guy. I like to please everybody. And what I started to realize, it's a hard thing to ask, is you know, I try to put myself in the shoes of high-level CEOs that aren't available to everybody, and they don't seem to have any problem with it. Maybe they do. And what I started to realize is I've got to, I've got to figure out now, is this meeting with someone worth my time? And when I say worth my time, I don't mean it has to result in anything specific. It just might be a great connection. It might be someone that knows somebody else. It might be somebody I learned from. It might be somebody that I just help, and I get a lot of gratitude from that too. But what I didn't recognize right away, and you, you already got to it well before I figured it out, was some people just wanted to meet because they thought it'd be cool to meet a guy that broadcasts baseball. I personally don't think meeting me would be that exciting or that cool. And I know that sounds kind of self-deprecating or, or whatever, but I think my family and my closest friends would say the same thing because they just know me as a guy. Um, so it was really strange for me to see myself that way. Even having been in the media as long as I was, I never viewed myself that way. Now I, I see it, but I try to do it with the healthiest dose of humility because I am just like the athletes, well, minus their abilities, uh, I'm just a guy. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, you know, like you and I sat for coffee, it was just two, two guys having coffee. Right. But I think that the challenge when you maybe find some success or the more people you meet, or in my case, doing, trying to do five things at once is that you have to be able to say no sometimes. And I don't like it at all, but that's just something that I'm learning how to do. No, I totally agree with that, Joe. Um, I've spent my whole professional career. I moved from New York to Kansas City thinking I'd move back two or three years later and uh, stayed out here the whole time. But I think the community here is a, a giving community and they sincerely want to help people. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's very interesting from that perspective. So I, I'm sure you got tons of help when you were meeting people. Oh, in the, community. the best. And I want to be able to do that for people too. Right. I mean, it's, it's, um, you can't, you can't do it for everybody, but, but you do like, it, it's very grat. You know, this, like you've been around a long time. I've been around a long time. It's, it's extremely gratifying when you can help send someone in the right direction or, or, or lend a little bit of insight or, 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 or maybe give somebody a little bit of hope or some strategies. And, and that's, you know, hopefully that's something that that's not anything I ever expected to be doing outside of telling a young broadcaster some advice and, and, and some suggestions, but now it's happening in, you know, in, in all types of professions, which is pretty cool. What do you think in terms translates the best in terms of, you know, what you've learned from covering sports, you know, uh, for such a long time and your consulting business, is it the culture piece of it? Is it the team building? Is it the leadership? What appeals to most companies or what, what are you seeing there? I think it's a few things, at least, you know, I, I hope that they're hiring me because, you know, they're getting great value. I'm a storyteller. That's what I've always done. And now I'm telling stories to companies and associations in longer form than what I would for a 30, 45 second, one minute story uh, in the middle of the game. And I think, and at least this is what I try to tell people, that whether you like sports or not, it is so relatable to everyday life. 
not the lifestyles they're living. People can't relate to flying on a team charter and staying in the Ritz Carlton and, and uh, you know, all that type of stuff that comes with it or standing in the box and facing a hundred mile an hour fastball. I, I can't relate to that either, but there's something about having to perform to having to perform under pressure. There's something about being on a diverse team, about having to connect with people, about having to deal with failure, which is to me why baseball is the greatest sport to use as a teaching tool to anybody in other professions. Because we can debate what sport's the hardest, the toughest, any of that type of thing. But football plays once a week. Hockey and basketball typically play two to three times a week, maybe four. And baseball plays at minimum five games a week, if not six to seven, which is a lot more representative of the hours that most people work. Most people, if they're lucky, go to a job five days a week, oftentimes six or seven, if you had another jobs. How do you grind through the tough times? How do you connect with people that are different than you? How do you lead people that are different than you? You walk into a baseball clubhouse, there are 26 players. You don't have 26 stars. Even the New York Yankees or the New York Mets or the big market teams, they might have six or seven stars, which might be too much actually, but you don't have 26 stars, which means people have to have roles. Not everybody plays every single day. They have to be ready to play every single day. You get guys from the Dominican, guys from Venezuela, who may speak the same language, but guess what? The cultures are different in the Dominican Republic from Venezuela, Cuba, Mexico, Puerto Rico, sometimes Japan, United States, inner city, suburbs, country, south, north. Kid grew up on the beach. The guy with the locker next to him grew up in the inner city of Detroit. And you got to figure out how to make it work. And while you're figuring out how to make it work, you got little clicks in there. You got the, the, the Latin guys off in the corner speaking one language. You got the pitchers all hanging out together. You got the hitters hanging out together. How do you make it work? And that's what's become most intriguing to me is, you know, take the Royals right now, having a historically awful season. But how do you push forward? How do you keep coming to work every day? How do you motivate? How do you embrace change? So how do you build trust? All of this is stuff that I see every single day in a locker room. And that's not just them. That's me, you know, and, and let's take it one step further. I am right now covering athletes that are many of them between the ages of 22 and 26. When I started in Kansas city, I was 35 years old covering athletes, 22 to 26. I'm now 51 covering athletes, 22 to 26. Guess what executives and mid-level managers who they're working with right now as they get into their 40s and 50s, 22 to 26. The kids that are 22 to 26 right now are not the same as those that were 22 to 26 10 years ago because they've been through a pandemic, social media, isolation, on and on, hybrid situations. So all of this translates to the baseball world as well. And vice versa. 
Yeah, I'd love that analogy. I never really thought about that, but I mean that that is so true um in terms of, you know, just everything that happens in baseball and the frequency, you know, playing the five, seven games a week. I never really thought about that. Uh, and obviously with the diverse, you know, teammates and cultures and winning and losing and, you know, it's just, you know, you know, it's like the Bull Durham uh, line and what they're at the, the pool table, you know, the difference, you know, is, uh, you know, one flare a week and you're in the Hall of Fame, right? You bet. Yeah. Go from 275 to 300. So that reminds me, I, I, I have to ask you your favorite baseball movie because I'm a... Uh, oh, you just got it. Bull Durham. Okay. Yeah. So I'm 100% with you on that one. Love that movie. Yeah. And I'm not just saying that. I mean, I, it's interesting because when we ask this question a lot when we're doing fun little stories with players and, and you know, the, the players now are more likely to say something like The Sandlot because which is a great movie, but, you know, Bull Durham and The Natural and um, uh, Field of Dreams and The League of Their Own and, you know, on and on, the, uh, even Major League uh, or go back to the Bad News Bears. Those, those, those are movies that were released well before a lot of these players were born. And so, you know, did their parents show them those movies? Did they go back and watch them? Because those are probably oldies to them at this point. But to me, it started with Bull Durham. I did. I really loved Field of Dreams too. Uh, I liked all of them, but I, Bull Durham to me just—I don't know—that that just always to me captured minor league baseball and the baseball life. Yeah, I actually used to play that Bull Durham clip when they're in the pool room. And because and I, when I spoke to sales teams, because that's the difference become, you know, the president's club salesperson versus, you know, the mid-level, you know, it's that, it's that one more sale a week or the one more call, you know, to, to get to the next level. So, and it's a great scene. Joel, there's two groups I love to help in the podcast, and you, you've touched on it a little bit. But one is the you know, recent college graduate going for their first job. Uh, they're always, you know, every university teaches them, you know, how to get whatever major they get, but they really don't teach them how to get a great job. What what advice would you impart on a, you know, 22 year old graduating college on how to pursue that first job? All right, this is an easy one for me, and and none of this is easy. I I really should preface it by saying that, but. It's an easy answer for me. And I'll go back to when I got in and I'll make it very, very relatable, I hope. When when I broke into television, and I understand times are different now, and I understand that most of the audience is not listening to break into television, but this is really all about people. I'm 22 years old. This is pre-internet. Internet's about kind of starting. Email is new. And I got to figure out how to get a television job. And I'm sending resume tapes all over the country through some phone service that I subscribe to where, you know, you'd, you'd have a special code and it was some, you know, 800 number. And then you'd, you'd punch in your special code for the whatever, however much money I spent per month on a subscription. And it would give you any openings day by day because you couldn't look them up. And I sent out 20 something resume tapes and was 0 for 25 or whatever the number was. I got rejected. I got a letter back on every one. Nope, nope, nope. So I was ready to give up. And I don't remember who gave me the advice, but I was told that to start calling TV stations and, and, and essentially knocking on doors. And I'll, I'll preface this also by saying I'm not a cold, I hate cold calling. And to this day, I, I'm not comfortable with it. So anyone that's listening, uh, you know, a, a recent college grad, a soon-to-be college grad, 
uh, or whatever it might be. Um, I guess that would have been recent. My months are always messed up because we're just based on baseball. But um, you sometimes have to get a little bit uncomfortable. And this was uncomfortable. But I started calling TV stations. And it would be the same thing every time. Hey, I'm, you know, I want to introduce myself, Mr. Smith. Uh, my name is Joel Goldberg. I recently graduated from the University of Wisconsin. I understand you don't have any openings right now. But I'm, I'm actually passing through town in two weeks on either Tuesday or Wednesday. If I were to come in sometime during that day, um, could I drop off a tape and, and and just meet you? And every one of them said yes. And I was never going to any one of those cities until they said yes. And then I would show up and and some of them might just be five minutes. Some of them might be an hour, an hour and a half. But what happened is I started building relationships or at least started those relationships so that when there was an opening, I made it to the top of the list. Because if they got a stack of 100 resumes, or maybe that stack is just in a folder on an email nowadays, what even guarantees you that they're going to even look at you? So I remember telling this story to someone a few years back, and they said, yeah, well, nowadays we have LinkedIn. This is the big piece here of the advice. Nowadays, we have LinkedIn. And I said, so does everybody else. So what sets you aside? Okay, you can reach out via LinkedIn just like everybody else. So my question that I ask everybody, whether just graduating college or looking for a new job or whatever it is, is what makes you different? And the answer can't be I'm better than everyone else because there's somebody as good as you. What makes you different? And I wasn't better than anyone else. I would argue I was not. I would argue there were plenty of people that were that were better broadcasters than me. But what I did better than everybody else is I out-hustled them. Peter Malouk, the, the founder and CEO of Creative Planning, he's worth a lot more than most of us, uh, an incredibly down-to-earth human being. Um, and, and I had him on my podcast, and he talked about, you know, you still can control, I'm paraphrasing now, you still can control how hard you work. And so that piece that you, you can do, you can out-hustle others to that job but you have to do it in a way that one is not annoying and two shows initiative and shows that you're more interested than others. And there's a balance to it, but I put myself to the front of the line. So the question we all should always be asking ourselves is what makes us different than everybody else. That's it. Yeah. I love that. Um, I think that's, that's great advice. I'm not, I've not heard of that. I've asked probably 40 people that question. So that's, that's great advice. The, you know, the second group, Joe, I like to help is so you know, when you work for a company out of school, you know, you're an individual contributor, you don't have anybody reporting to you, but when you become that manager, you get a promotion. Now you got five people reporting to you. What advice would you have them as they begin their leadership uh, journey and now they're responsible for the team and there's the strategy and you know the, the you know the culture within that team listen um I, i'll start there because you know and you remember earlier in, in the podcast i you know, talked about moving away from having to edit and do all those things now i wasn't managing those people there there's producer and editor a writer or whatever the, they they have a responsibility just as important as mine on TV. We, we, we tend to get the attention. But giving people some grace, giving, giving people a say, uh, trusting people to do their job, picking your spots, uh, you know, not everything is you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. Nobody wants a micromanager. Um, but I, I think, and I've learned this along the way, that people want to be heard. And that's true no matter what your role is. And we live in a day and age right now. I talk about what makes you different. 
we live in a day and age right now where everyone, myself included, get, or almost everybody, get sidetracked by their phones, by everything that is so instant gratification. And there's a lane there in terms of leadership, in terms of being successful for people that are willing to just listen. Some of the best leaders that I've met with, when I talk about the best, I mean like the, the, the biggest name, the highest level leaders that I, I might be lucky enough if I get to lunch with once a year. And I understand that to try to ask for more than that. You can generally tell, you know, like when you got a book with someone like that, two, three, four months out, that their time is really in demand. But when I meet with someone like that, they put their phone away and they just listen. And I feel good that they're giving me a voice. I think when you can make people feel important, when you can make people feel like they have a voice, that's how you build the trust. As long as it's genuine and people feel like they're being heard, they're going to deliver for you. And I, I think that's the place to start. Yeah, I think that, yeah, listening is just so important. And just, you know, with all the distractions, like you said, you know, to just to be present is, is a gift, right? So it's a gift you give somebody else. Joel, thank you so much for being on the Corporate Couch. You've been a great guest. And uh, I know you're busy uh, with, with the Royals. Uh, but thank you for being on the show today. Well, it's been fun, and uh, I hope some people can get some, some benefit out of it. And I, it's, it's great getting to know you, Jeff, and uh, looking forward to more. Yeah, sounds good. Go Royals. Joe, as you know, I love interviewing all my guests, but I will say Joel Goldberg. Our childhoods are very similar, Lo you know, love sports, uh, played sports, you know, from morning to night, you know, uh, he said, well, we didn't have a bell, but, you know, or, or my mom yelled to, you know, yeah. sign for dinner. And it's, it's very similar. And I would say for me, we had similar childhoods. And, and you know, he even says they now pay me to talk about baseball every day and I'm living my dream. Mm -hmm. So I had two aspirations as a, a young kid. I wanted to be an NFL quarterback, but also I would love to do do football games, be a football analyst or play-by-play. -play, and that was kind of my two aspirations growing up. And he's doing it. Yeah, so it was just a great interview. Uh, we got him to admit the first time in public. Uh, his favorite sports movie is Bull Durham. All right. Uh, love that. And then really his pivot when he went to Fox Sports full-time, but he only worked six months of the year and became like a contract person at 1099. And he had to figure out, well, what am I going to do? the other six months because i got to do something and he pivoted in 2017 launched his podcast started doing public speaking and then built a consulting practice around leadership and culture and what was great uh, he gave that baseball analogy how the similarities between baseball players and managers and the corporate world so i just thought that was fantastic uh what was your take with the conversation yeah that was an incredible pivot wasn't it moving from just commenting on sports and then going into the whole that whole business of the culture and everything he had so many great stories i mean where do you begin i have a whole page full of notes from him but where i can go with this is uh the, the one story that he had where he talked about he decided he was going to write a book and so he just in his mind in, inside joel's mind it was like okay i'm going to write a book wait i don't know anything about writing a book okay i'll hire somebody to help me write a book so he hires this lady 
and uh, she comes in for an interview and he says, I'm, I'm going to write a book. Help me write a book. And after the interview, what is this, the advice that she gives him? Now, remember, she stands to make money if he, if he actually writes the book, right? But the, yeah. advi- but the advice that she gives him is, you're not ready to write a book yet, right? So yeah, she, I love that. Oh, it was so it was it was amazing, right? I mean, how many times where if you or I would be hired as a consultant that we would come in and they would say, "Hey, we need you to fix XYZ database or whatever." And we would look at it and say, "Guess what? You're not ready for me yet." You know, I I, I don't I'm not sure if I would have done that or not. But that's what yeah. she did. She said, "You're you're not ready to write a book. Start this podcast instead." And what does it yield for him? It yields for him acres and acres and acres of material that he can turn around then and do what? Write a book. So it was an amazing piece of of advice that he got from her. I have so much respect for ghostwriters or consultants or anything that would um, tell their client that they're really not ready for their services yet. I thought that was. That was amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's just a true servant leader, value-added person that thinks about the right thing to do, yeah. and that obviously that person did it. Uh, so any leadership advice you want to give the audience today? Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to go back to that great philosopher, Michael Scott, who one time said, I'm an early bird and I'm a night owl. So I'm wise and I have worms. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.